everyone. Welcome to episode number 43 of the Fitness Devil podcast. We just had Greg Knuckles on here. So if you're not familiar with Greg, big, strong power lifter, but one of the smartest guys in our industry. So we talked to him about what he'd like to have accomplished over the long term with his career. We get into a really detailed conversation about the possibility of more regulation within the personal training industry, how that will affect trainers, clients. We look at athletes, the guys and girls who are very, very big and heavy, like powerlifters, strongmen, carry excess body mass, and the long-term health implications of the different directions that can go in. Greg does a really great job of explaining how communication styles on contentious issues can take different routes and how they can be more or less effective. He blasts the train smarter, not harder mantra that seems to cause more harm than good. And this one's really fun. Stick around to the end. It gets really fucking funny. Greg is great. So enjoy, please. Shut up and sit down. Hey, everybody. Uh, joining us today is a man behind StrongerByScience.com. It was originally known as StrengthTheory.com, but uh, we got Greg Knuckles here, so um, welcome, Greg. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, I guess I better introduce you a little bit for anyone who isn't too, too familiar with you. Uh, in addition to being a pretty decorated powerlifter, uh, Greg is among the fitness industry's most respected academics, researchers, and writers, and he's also behind the popular Mass Research Review. So, again, like, we really appreciate you coming on. Read a lot of papers. Yeah, th thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, we usually set out to bypass the origin stories. You've done a lot of podcasts. People probably know a lot about it. This stuff gets really repeated and it gets pedantic for guys like you uh, and repetitive. So, you are widely respected and accomplished at a very young age in our industry. What would you like to be able to look back and say you've accomplished, let's say 30 years from now, and what changes would you like to influence within the current industry? Um, so the, the answer to this question probably isn't going to go in the direction that you, uh -huh. that you might expect it to. Good. Um, so in terms of, of what I'd like to look back and have accomplished in 30 years. I am ethically a pretty devoted utilitarian. Like that's just the default ethical framework I work with. Um, and so I think the stuff I do in our industry is important and I think it's a net positive. Um, but ultimately, um, I think that as a utilitarian, what I should try to do is the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, and there's globally some very low hanging fruit as far as that goes. Um, so like there's still millions of people who die every year from starvation or from uh, like nutrient deficiencies like iron and iodine are two big ones that are really cheap and easy to replace if there's funding. Um, so like, at this point, like I live considerably below my means, um, and donate as much money as I can to good charitable causes. Um, a, a good website, if someone's interested in, um, giving to, to charities that are doing a lot of good quite efficiently, 
thelifeyoucansave.com is a, is a good site to check out. Uh, so I just plan to keep doing what I'm doing, try to be a net positive within our industry, but then also um, be successful business-wise and be able to contribute globally to charities that are making like a considerably larger net positive impact on people's lives. Did you go out and, and obviously with your success, you've had the opportunity to like, I guess, choose what to do with your money. Did you go out knowing that that was how you were going to live your life regardless of your success or not in terms of like the net positive and donations and I guess being a philanthropist in terms of what you're saying? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't make that Bill Gates money. No. I feel like, I, I feel like uh, philanthropist is dramatically overstating it. Small, um, small time. Do you make Mike Isertel money is the question. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't answer that. I mean, pr- probably not. <laughs> uh, but no, like that's just, um, that is the ethical system that has always appealed to me the most on just an intuitive level. Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, ultimately I think that we're supposed to try to live a good life and that's, um, my idea of what a good life is. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's generally the direction I probably would have gone regardless. Um, so yeah, <laughs> like you found like, a way to fund, you, you found a way to donate by researching papers let's just put that's a pretty big like accomplishment in itself like you research stuff and review it and that helps out people in whatever you're donating to which is kind of crazy if you look at that i guess so but you get to kill two birds (laughs) with one stone you get to go be a researcher slash donate and be a small time philanthropist that's not making bill gates money yet which could happen sure (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's go after at least one piece of low-hanging fruit thing, because <laughs> I'm going to go in the direction that we wanted to go, though. And your answer was amazing. Is there actually something, though, that um, you would like to change more in terms of what's going on within our industry, or at least how it's affecting the end client? Uh... In terms... So this... I, if memory serves, this might be something you're going to ask later later in the interview. Sure. Um, and this this might be a controversial opinion, um, but I think just having higher standards for trainers and potentially going the licensure route um, would be short term. I think it would be a net negative. Long term, I think it would be a net positive. Um, and probably probably not necessarily for the reasons that people would think. So short term, it would probably be a net negative because there are a lot of good people in the industry who know what they're doing and they're effective and they care about their clients and all of that, um, who wouldn't have whatever credentials necessary to qualify for licensure right away. Um, and that's that's generally like one of the first counterpoints that like anti-licensure people trot out. Uh, but the way I see it is, um, like ultimately, ultimately I think a lot of the bad that is done in our industry is less because of people who are like purposeful charlatans and more just from people who uh, just don't know any better, um, and not that they don't know any better because they're dumb, but they just don't know any better because they really ultimately don't care that much. 
Um, cause a lot of people, a lot of people, like if you ask them when they were 18 years old and like graduating high school, what do you want to do with your life? There aren't that many people who are like, yeah, I want to be a personal trainer. Um, I think for a lot of people, it winds up kind of being a backup plan. Uh, and so they just don't care about it that much. And they kind of see it as a part-time gig and a stepping stone to something bigger and better that they actually want to do with their lives. Um, and I think that those people kind of, uh, unintentionally are, are the people who wind up being most of the net negative for our industry. And so I think ultimately licensure would dissuade a lot of those people from ever entering the industry in the first place. Um, and ultimately I think that it would ensure that the people who wound up getting into the industry are the people who give a shit. Um, and it would also just tighten the job market and make it, um, like decrease the, uh, supply of labor to some degree, which would put upward pressure on wages. Mm -hmm. Um, which would also then, uh, incentivize more people to potentially get into the industry who otherwise wouldn't because of the current, uh, low average wages. So I think that that would be, uh, in the short term, pretty bad thing. Um, cause it would short term decrease the supply of trainers considerably. And, uh, there are a lot of people out there who need tra- trainers, but long term, I think it would, uh, help incentivize more good people to get into the industry, weed out the people who really don't care. Um, and I mean, hopefully th- this, this wouldn't affect people like me that much. Cause like, you know, I, I live in the powerlifting world and strength sports are, probably never going to be covered by insurance. But in terms of just like personal training, like that's preventative medicine. Like that's one of the best things that people could do for their health long term. Um, but like with the current system as it is, like your insurance isn't going to reimburse you going to a personal trainer just to get fit and get healthy. Um, but I think if there were, if there was a higher bar to entry and licensure and, the personal training profession started looking more and more like the physical therapist profession, um, to the point that it became like an an allied health profession and could accept insurance. Um, I think that that would be a a very, very large societal benefit. Do you think, uh, that one of the sort of side effects of exactly what you just described could be what already sort of exists a cluster of coaches who are already not even certified or insured, which we see a lot of mostly in the competitive aesthetic bodybuilding bikini world. There's a lot of people I'm aware of locally. They have some competitive background. They have no education, no certifications, and yet they are coaching, giving meal plans, um, often enough actually selling the, uh, the, the steroids that go hand in hand with some of this stuff. I, do you actually think that any of this stuff could keep them out or do you think it could inadvertently create a splitting of the industry where there's very much the unregulated side that still just goes full blast and then a very highly regulated industry? Well, so I think it would, I think it would ultimately kind of go the way of uh, nutritionists and RDs where, um, you know, if, if you just want to recommend macros to people or whatever, you're fine. But if you start making like specific food recommendations to treat, uh, 
chronic conditions or whatever, you've crossed the line, you're doing what an RD does. And if people get wind of it, you can be sued and run out of the industry. Um, and a lot of people do try to tiptoe that line or do provide illegal services and get away with it long term. Um, but it is at the very least some degree of a disincentive um, because like, you know that people could go after you and shut you down. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, if, if there is a law, there will be people trying to break it. Um, so like, I don't see it completely doing away with folks like that, but I do see it, um, decreasing the number of people, uh, who are trying to provide services like that. I could see it kind of clearing out a lot of the the entry level and quite frankly unqualified trainers that we often see in the industry. Uh, it, it would certainly raise the bar for people. I, based on even this alone, my, my certification is a fairly basic one, despite my experience and my pursuits for further knowledge. So I would certainly need to upgrade uh, the certification or regulation I would have if something came in like this. I'm not necessarily resistant to the idea because I think there's a lot of inherent good, like you said. Yeah, and and like the thing is, like you care, so you You'll would do, do that. Yeah, and I, I think would. that that it's like the whole how much do you actually give a fuck scale, because if yeah. the, if the if the barrier to entry is larger, the people who see it as like the side gig or something they don't really care about, they can just get in there right now probably pretty easily over a weekend. Where now they have to second guess like fuck, I got to actually put some resources to get there, and it kind of will just sift through the people who don't actually want it. And some people will get through the the, the fall through the cracks, but I mean it's just a better process overall for finding better people. I would say yeah. And I mean, I'm, I, I would be in the same boat as you, Andrew. Uh, I actually don't have any certifications whatsoever. Uh, the way I saw it is I have a degree in exercise science that has to count more than a weekend certification course. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I just never got a certification because it seemed like a waste of time and money. Uh, but if there was a particular one that was required to practice in our industry, like, of course I'd get it because yeah. I care. And if that was... If that was the bar to entry, like I do, what it what it took to clear it. What do you think the realistic nature of this happening? I, I think we've talked about this before, but like, do you think that it's actually going to go that route, or do you think there's too much going on that, like, money wise, it ain't going to? And happen? I'm and I'm going to tack on a question to that too, because of the nature of the regulation being the U.S. and different states in Canada. What do you? How do you think that plays out? Um. I could definitely see it occurring in other countries before it occurs in the U.S. because uh, we we have a culture that's very anti-regulation of in, of anything. Um, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> especially I mean, now. Just just recently, though, um, like within I think like the last ten years or so, uh, the athletic training profession went that route. So not like not like training athletes like strength and conditioning, but athletic trainers, like the people who would uh, be in the training rooms and like on the sidelines of sporting, sporting events, um, offering like real time treatment to athletes. Um, that used to be a much less regulated profession, but it, uh, it went the licensure route pretty recently and has recently become an allied health profession and they can start accepting insurance and, and whatnot. Um, and I, I kind of see them as, to some degree, the midpoint uh, between like pure physical therapy and strength and conditioning. 
Um, so I, I think there's some degree of momentum in that direction. Um, I'd be surprised if the U.S. was the first country that went that route. Um, but like, I think that ACSM really, really is pushing for the U.S. to go that route. Um, and right now, since there aren't any international examples or international success stories to point to, they're meeting a lot of headwinds. Um, just because like, well, because the U S generally doesn't like to be the first to try out any new regulation, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, I, I could see like some other countries going that route, it going pretty well. And then the ACSM being able to point to it and say like, Hey, Congress, look what these other countries have done. It's working pretty well for them. Um, so yeah, like, I don't know. I, I wouldn't necessarily put money on it occurring within a five or 10 year time frame, but I, I'd be pretty confident that it would occur within like a 20 year time frame if I'm just taking a guess. Yeah, cool. So again, another one of the sort of questions from this, and I'm actually glad you brought it up because like we moved this question right to the front is then who sets the standard? You know, what, what, board or what designation ends up being the one calling the shots because I'm of the impression at least in the US that there's some jockeying for this and some of this may be less about setting a standard and more about Dr. Oz man you certain, get it well, certain governing bodies like organizations like NASM or ACSM being the ones who are in control and it becomes about money so thoughts on that uh I mean that I don't really know how much of a difference that would make because it's already about money. <laughs> like if, if, if you look at any of the like large national bodies offering certification, yeah. like certification is already just, it just prints money. Yeah. Um, Cause it costs vanishingly little money to develop tests and administer tests, but you're charging people, you know, depending on the organization between 400 and a thousand bucks a pop just to either read a textbook and take a test or take like a weekend course and take a test. And that's God, that's so lucrative. It's ridiculous. hundred dollar textbook. Um, do I you pay a hundred dollar textbook, a $500 test cost yeah. them like what? Like, yeah, not very much. Money. <laughs> so, I mean like, of course there's money considerations. Like there's already money considerations. Um, I'm I'm much less concerned about who's making money and much more concerned about uh, the nature of the standards of practice that would be set. Because um, so if you like if everything is like tightened down too much, then uh, essentially what's the point of the trainer in the first place? Like you can just have like a database of information that you point people to. Um, but if there's not enforced enough standards, then people can just kind of jump through whatever hoops it takes to get certified and then do literally anything they want past that point, um, without any risk of repercussion. And at that point, uh, you kind of just wind up with the industry as we currently have it, but just with a slightly higher barrier to entry. Um, so I, I wouldn't profess to know what like the optimal, uh, balance of like openness versus um, regulation of practice would be, but it has to be tightened down more than it currently is. Cause I mean, currently people can just do like literally anything they want to 
and don't even have to be certified in the first place. And I think that's uh, a little bit too laissez-faire. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Now, ultimately, I hope <clears throat> what it ends up being is a better quality experience for the clients, better results, safer, you know, people not being exposed to some of the dangerous stuff that well, we know there's more than enough of that out there with the various uh, scary charlatans promoting scary ideas <laughs> that we're seeing. So, but I don't want to dwell on the negative so much on that one. I want to jump to powerlifting. He wants to jump. Like, to I think that you like powerlifting. I would think I that's do. a fair assessment. I'd say, like, we'll call it a passion. You're pretty successful at it. Let's just talk like some of the strength stuff about it, and just let's just touch briefly right now on excess body mass. So we'll say muscle for powerlifters or any of the strength sports. And fat too, though. And fat. What are some of the health trade-offs we see? And at what point? Well. we'll when do you see yourself retiring? But I want to know about like the excess body fat and like what are the long term effects on health. Um. So I think this could go go two different routes. Um. So one would be uh, maybe you compete at two seventy five or super heavyweight or whatever for a decade in your twenties and early thirties. And then you get out of the sport, you lose a lot of weight and you live the rest of your life at a, at a reasonable, healthy weight. Um, so that's one path someone could take. Another path someone could take is, you know, you're a super heavyweight, you compete at super heavyweight for 30 years. Uh, and that's <laughs> the majority of your life. Uh, or like, you know, you're in the sport for 10 years, you get out of the sport, you stay super heavyweight, but don't actually keep training and competing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, that those two routes would have, uh, drastically different long-term risk profiles. Um, I think someone in, I think someone like in the first category probably wouldn't be quite as well off as someone who maintained a healthy body weight their entire life, but they probably wouldn't be that much worse off ultimately. Yeah. Um, and they may, they may be slightly better off having been obese yet very active for a time than to have been normal weight, but sedentary for the mm -hmm. same time. Um, ultimately I don't think there's enough, uh, like long-term evidence on very active overweight and obese people to say for sure. But I think that, that mm -hmm. ultimately kind of that route of, you know, you compete in a heavyweight category for 10, 12 years and then, lose the weight and live like a more or less normal life past that point. Um, I, I really don't think that would have like that extreme of a long-term risk profile. Uh, the second approach of, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to get big for your sport and then you never get small, uh, either because you stay in the sport for a long time or you get out of the sport and just never lose the weight. Like that's, that's obviously not a, a good way to do things. Um, we see that. I feel I feel very confident saying you're going to die earlier for doing that. What's what? And I guess there's not many long term studies like you said. But like, what do you think the cutoff is for how many years you can pack that weight on? Because we see it with football players too, with yeah. longer careers, and we'll say D linemen and O linemen. But like, what's kind of the cutoff point where you're like, maybe you should fucking get out because like 20 years is maybe three years too long or something. Like, you know what I mean? Like, when when is the reversible parts of the health going to have diminishing returns later on if they stay longer? Uh, if I'm just going to throw an arbitrary cutoff on it, I would say probably, eh, sometime around 40 years old. 
Yeah. Um, so using NFL guys as a point of reference, yeah. um, there was uh, there was a study that came out pretty recently tracking um, like heart disease risk in NFL players after their careers were over, and like the the strongest independent factor determining whether they were at increased risk of chronic disease or not is basically, do they lose weight when they get out of the league? Yeah. Uh, you know, and most of those guys are getting out of the league in their early to mid thirties. Um, and so, you know, if they got out of the league and they lost weight, they tended to be pretty okay. If they got out of the league and they either didn't lose weight or continued to gain weight, that was a problem. Yeah. Um, so I think we have some evidence from looking at NFL players saying like, yeah, you know, if they're if they're hefty in their youth, but then they lose weight when they get done playing, they're they're probably going to be okay. Um, and then also, just like if you look at metabolically, when things start just naturally going downhill due to the just typical aging process, um, someone in their twenties should generally be okay. People in their thirties really aren't that much different from people in their twenties uh, physiologically. Um, once people start getting into their forties, even if they've been, um, generally healthy most of their life, like that's when, um, rates of like type two diabetes really start ticking up, um, like noticeably. So, you know, I think, I think as, as long as you're, uh, done and out of the sport and well, if, if you're competing in like a lower weight class or like a middleweight you can probably be in the sport for 40 years and be fine. Yeah. But in terms of like, if you're a 275, 308, super heavyweight, um, you know, you're, you're probably fine doing that till you're, till you're like mid thirties or like potentially early forties. But at that point it's, it's either time to get into a lower weight class or get out of the sport and lose weight. Um, and what kind of, I guess, since we're talking about the, like the point of weight, what, what's some advice you can give just from a power lifters perspective who knows a lot of stuff in science um, just some of the long-term health, I guess, changes people could make if they want to, if they want to live in that upper echelon of weight category and they're doing it anyways, what are some things they could do to mitigate some of these long-term health effects being in a sport where you're 300 pounds? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, if, if someone, if someone wants to compete as a super heavyweight for 30 years and that's just what they have their, their heart set on. Um, the fact that they're continuing to resistance train is good just from the get go, uh, past that probably be a good idea to add some aerobic training in, um, just to, to keep your, your ticker a little happier. Um, and I mean, past that, just like, you're going to be eating a ton of calories to maintain that body weight. So try to make sure those calories are coming from generally high quality, healthy foods. Uh, I think one of the, one of kind of the sneaky risks of maintaining a body weight that high is like, let's say you have to eat 5,000 calories a day to maintain weight, which is not an atypical number. Uh, really no matter what you're eating, um, that's going to fill you up. And you're not going to want to eat vegetables or anything with fiber because that fills you up faster. Um, so, like, I think people, I think people, when they think about satiety, 
uh, they tend to think about it in the context of like losing weight and a hypocaloric diet because you're trying to do everything possible to increase satiety so you don't feel as hungry and irritable all the time. Uh, but like satiety is also an issue when you're trying to maintain a really high calorie diet because like all of the generally beneficial things that you would recommend that increase satiety are, are things that you're really not going to want to do when you're trying to put down four or 5,000 calories a day, but things you probably should be doing, like eating fruits and vegetables, uh, staying well hydrated because that takes up room in your stomach as well. Um, all of those things just naturally become more challenging when you're trying to put down more calories a day. Uh, so if you're someone who wants to eat that much and stay that big long term, um, diet quality is going to be, I think, more of a challenge than people realize. And it's something you're going to need to focus on. Yeah, I think I saw, I don't know if this is on T Nation, but it's like dredge, uh, like put olive oil all over an extra large pizza if you're really committed to gaining weight. But like at some point, like you got to find ways to get those calories in because you're going to run into that roadblock of being satiated. And it's just like, Well, this, this whole conversation, I guess, applies to probably all three of us in a way. I'm the oldest of the three of us. I'm only just, 210 pounds. I'm good. Okay. Well, I, I'm two, nearly 260, and I'm 40 years old. So yeah, basically this you're, is, you're talking to him. <clears throat> you just put that question in for himself. Yeah, you're basically talking to me on this shit, and it's like... Are you God. really 40? Yeah, he is. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? And he's 260. No, I, I, thought, I thought you were like early to mid-30s. Okay. <laughs> You thought I was like You're, my late. He's 20s. telling you, man. You gotta, you gotta no, eat better, eat less I, to get the fuck out. of I here. turned forty in March. I know it shocks the fucking hell out of everybody. <laughs> so I guess, uh, but you know, as it goes to you, because you're big fucking dude and a strong powerlifter, what, do, where do you see yourself in terms of your powerlifting career and kind of the trajectory you'll take through the same conversation? Uh man, that's that's a good question. Um, so. I have, I have some numbers I want to hit, past which I think I'll be okay with not necessarily pushing too hard in the sport anymore. Um, I want to squat eight, pull eight, bench five, and put a two thousand total on the platform. Um, and once I do, it, I would say at least three of those things, um, I would be okay saying like all right i've gotten strong enough those those were the goals i have set for myself uh because because like for me i'm i'm more attracted to like shiny numbers than i am competition (laughs) um like i have i have no motivation whatsoever to try to win an ipf championship because like i i like training for powerlifting but i really hate sitting through powerlifting meets and like you would have a hard time paying me enough money to like fly halfway around the world to do a powerlifting meet. And instead of paying me money, like I would be investing like three, $4,000 in that and like plane tickets and hotels. Like no part of that sounds appealing to me. Um, but I am, I am motivated by like nice shiny numbers. Uh, so like I feel really good about my odds of, uh, eventually, squatting and benching eight slightly less good about my odds of pulling eight, but I think that could potentially be in the cards. Um, but I never see myself squatting nine or benching six, uh, unless I hop on gear, which I have no intention of doing. (laughs) Um, 
So like, I I think I think one I'll just kind of naturally lose some motivation, and two like those are those are just nice numbers I can take to the grave with me. You um, put on your tombstone and. And and I'm just getting I'm getting a little bit antsy with the sport in the first place because like I've been I've been doing this for 12 13 years now and it's a really simple sport and yeah. I just kind of want to branch out and try new things so I want to I want to hit those numbers and then maybe give strongman a shot uh, maybe do a bodybuilding show Ooh, probably fuck not it. fuck yeah uh, but but just you know just just explore um, different aspects of physical culture where. I haven't invested as much time and energy to that point. So I wouldn't feel the need to push my body weight high to do like to push my strength to the absolute top levels I, I possibly could. Um, so yeah, like I, I want to, I want to hit a 2000 total in the next two or three years. Uh, and then probably not be done with powerlifting forever, but at least be able to step back from the sport and, um, not have to, not have to keep my weight where it currently is to, to do what I want to do. I didn't say, well, you didn't say CrossFit. I, I just had this image of you doing kipping pull-ups after that, but, uh, like why not CrossFit? Yeah, man. Um, you don't, I don't know. I just don't like it. <laughs> you don't have to dignify that with an uh, answer. I mean, like in, in a general sense, I'm a proponent of CrossFit. I think it's been a net positive thing for our industry. Yep. Um, I I have tried it and I personally just don't enjoy it. It's hard. It's a lot of effort. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was gonna say, do you think that the fact that you've kind of solidified yourself in the powerlifting world outside of just lifting because of your research and because of the things you do on the side, that will make it easier to step away with with your goals in in hand? Because a lot of people have trouble stepping away from competition because it's their whole identity, but you've kind of immersed yourself in powerlifting outside of just the lifting aspect. <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, I like. I think. I think from a business perspective, it would affect me less than it, than it would affect other people. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people who don't even know I lift. Like <laughs> they've because I I don't talk about it on my website. No. And so unless you like follow me on Instagram, you would have uh, no inkling that I actually lift weights. Um, like I, I get messages from people probably at least like once every every couple of weeks and they're like, man, I've been reading your articles for a while. And I thought like, oh, this is good stuff. This is a smart dude. And then I found your Instagram like I didn't know you were actually strong. Um, <laughs> so so I think that I think that already applies to like a non negligible percentage of my audience. So that makes sense. I, I think business wise, I'd be OK. Um, but. I mean, more than anything, like I'd just be doing it for myself. Uh, I, yeah, like, I don't know. It's, it's just been a long time, you know, like (laughs) I've I've put, I put over a decade of my life into it at this point. Um, I know I can still continue making progress, but I don't know if I can continue making enough progress to really warrant putting another solid decade into it. Absolutely. So I, I got that feeling know. like I played football my whole life and in college, like, so you get to that like 12, 13 year thing. And like, there is a decline if like, if I'm not going to pros, like you're going to decline. And so like, depending on your personal preference, like if I'm not getting better, I'll just get, get out. Cause it's the whole point, the process, but like at some point it ends. And I think for you, it sounds like it's been a long time. <laughs> 
Yeah, like, I, I don't have any interest in being, like, 50 years old and trying to, like, match my old Wilkes on, like, an <laughs> age-adjusted basis. You know? Like, if, if I'm not improving in an absolute sense, I just lose interest. Yeah, that make, that's a shiny numbers thing. Because the, the shiny numbers are going downhill well, at a certain age. I, I don't, I never was a competitive powerlifter. I liked, you know, big lifts or whatever, but I haven't attempted any of my maxes on the big lifts in a few years. It doesn't really appeal to me. I still maintain some pretty good stuff. I, I don't deadlift much. It, I just don't really give two shits about it. I like to squat. I'll do it twice a week. But I just lift to just stay in good shape and look a lot younger than I am. So that makes me happy. Do they have any studies on, <laughs> on gingers and like them looking younger than they are? Uh, I don't know if there's any data on that. Greg would probably know better than me. I doubt it very much. No idea. Probably yeah. not. That would be a bad study. So, off topic, uh, we just recorded an episode, and by the time people are listening, uh, it will be have been out for about a week. It's with Louis Guarino, and so he just posted, I said we were recording with you at this moment, and he said to say hi, so Louis wanted to say hi to you. And Tell, uh, tell, tell Louis to, to get his tail back to the fitness summit. Yeah, we're actually talking about that on air, so... Uh, Unbelievable. I know, right? Selfish. He, he just moved to Toronto, or well, he'd been in Toronto for two years, but just kind of went yeah. back. Yeah, getting settled away there. But actually, so I'll pivot into something else that you wrote, and I, I I fished through your social media for some really good stuff to talk about. But you recently wrote a post about communication styles on contentious issues, <laughs> and asking if people use a style that would most likely persuade persuadable members of the other side of the discussion. Or do you, you do you communicate in a style most likely to score points on your own side? The former seems more effective, yet many choose a latter route. Why? And what did you hope to showcase with this conversation, this post? Uh, I, I had a few different audiences in mind in writing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend to get pretty frustrated with the uh like quote-unquote evidence-based side of the fitness industry um because like when when i see people who have rose to prominence in our little corner of the industry uh nominally they say like oh we're trying to spread science and fight back against the bullshit uh but when you see how they actually like communicate uh, about people they disagree with or to people they disagree with, um, it tends to be like either just wall of PubMed links, uh, or just like <laughs> trolling and condescending. Yeah. And from that, one can surmise, uh, a couple things. So either one, they, care about science and evidence when it comes to nutrition and fitness, but they don't actually care about science and evidence when it comes to persuasion and rhetorical styles. Uh, Cause there is research on that. Um, and what they're doing isn't the best way to persuade or change minds. Um, so that's, that's one, um, that's one possible uh, conclusion you could come away with. Another possible conclusion you could come away with is uh, they just like feeling holier than thou art mm-hmm. and don't actually care about, uh, fighting back against anti-science forces and whatnot. Like they just, they just like feeling smarter than people and belittling them and putting them down. 
Um, that's not a particularly savory conclusion, but it is one that would be uh, commensurate with the uh, with the behavior that that you would see. Um, and then a third potential conclusion is that uh, from a business perspective, you make money on people who agree with you, not people who disagree with you. And so if you're communicating in a way that uh, will like belittle the other side and cause them to circle the wagons and not really persuade anyone, but that really like riles up your base of support, um, <laughs> that could potentially be a good business move. Uh, so <laughs> I can think of a lot of examples of people that we know personally or in our industry who do shit like that. I just like the way you explained yeah. it. It's the- it's very scientific, but true. And I think more people need to hear it like that because it would stop that shit. Because, yeah, the, the PubMed so articles. It, <laughs> it, just, it just frustrates me to no end because, like, I, I really can't see a potential third reason or a potential fourth reason for behaving in that fashion. It, it's either just, like, ignorance, uh, blatant self-interest, or just your kind of a shitty person and like to talk down on people. Um, and like, you know, if you're, if you're going to be evidence-based about other things, if your if your stated goal is to try to win people over to the scientific camp, like use the strategies that are going to be more effective in doing so. Um, and that is not, talking down on people and sending them 40 PubMed links and telling them to read it themselves. Like that's, that's not how you do it. And they're never doing it. I've seen those arguments even on each train progress where like guys just go crazy. I'm like, no one's reading this. And like, you just look like a dick and they might not even be dicks, but it's like you said, it's that quick judgment your brain makes like, man, this guy's, this guy's heated up. Like, why is he so heated up? We're talking about normal stuff. And it's just that perception because they may have good <clears throat> intentions, but that communication barrier they definitely didn't get what they wanted across, which was basically mm-hmm. to pr- produce that message and kind of I feel, persuade them. I feel like a lot of what we see, and I can think of some examples, I won't say them specifically, but some people we know and people I like, what they'll do is they'll say something, and yes, it's it's meant to speak within their own ideological echo chamber. Now, I think in, uh, certainly in things like, well, politics, we won't go there, but in nutrition, and a lot of other things that you can describe as ideologies, we're seeing uh, greater divides. We're seeing people f- go further, in the case of politics, left and right. And a lot of the time, people who are talking loudly on these issues are completely missing the opportunity to speak to the people in the middle or the people that they could influence, like you said, persuadable members. Instead, they really seem to be more interested in scoring points within the, the echo chamber. And what that ultimately leads to is there is no meeting in the middle and there's no resolution of the problems that we're seeing in forums like politics or in nutrition. And the battleground is or between, lifting. Yeah. The battleground is the, the fit pros, but the end user isn't benefiting from that. So, well, and what are some ways that like, just cause you had like the, the negatives on it. Like what are some ways that you feel is a better way to kind of get people to do the right things? Like what are just some actual things that people who want to persuade or want to get people more science-based, like what are some better ways of doing it for the end users? So the, uh, the, the first step of anything is displaying respect. Yeah. Um, because people, people just aren't going to respond well if you 
set yourself up as like, I'm the authority, you're an idiot and you know nothing. And now <laughs> I'm going to lecture you about this. Um, so I, th- there, there are two different ways you can go about this. Uh, one is to, um, like ask questions to the person to like clarify what exactly they believe, uh, reformulate what they've been saying and then ask like, am I understanding this correctly? Uh, so that's, that's you showing to them that you're actually taking the time to understand what they believe before you're trying to critique it. Uh, once they say like, yes, that's, uh, that's an accurate representation of my position, then, um, it helps to ingratiate yourself to them to some degree. So to say like some, uh, good things about, about what they believe, uh, occasionally that's difficult. So if someone's like anti-vaxxer, not really that many positives you can say, but like, for example, let's say that that this is a debate about like the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity. Easier. Um, you could, you could say like, uh, like I totally get where you're coming from. Like here are the like logical steps in, in your belief system. Um, I can totally understand like why you would think this. And I can understand why this would be beneficial for some people because like you're cutting out a bunch of junk food. If you're, if you're cutting back on refined carbohydrates, blah, blah, blah. So you demonstrate, you understand what they're talking about in their position. Then you, um, then you say you, you find some good things to say about it. So they're not perceiving you as like a warrior who's fighting against them but more as someone who is, you know, approaching them with, with mutual respect and trying to maybe guide them in a slightly different direction. Um, and then at that point, once you've, once you've done that, then you can start, um, you know, leveling some criticisms, but doing so again in a constructive and respectful way. Uh, and once you've gone through that process, they'll hopefully realize that you're not just, attacking them, but more like trying to have a respectful conversation. Um, and just like, you know, going through that process and treating people with respect is, is going to make them, um, more likely to actually listen to what you have to say instead of just like, just waiting for that comment to pop up on their screen so they can attack you right back. Uh, so, uh, and I'll admit that's not a process I came up with. I originally got it from Daniel Dennett. Uh, but I'm sure it existed long before him as well. I was going to say, it should be a book. Uh, a book, How to Convince an Anti-Vaxxer. <laughs> Persuade. Then the, the, other, the other process you can go about is kind of the um, Socratic method. Uh, and there's, there is actually research looking at this and its effectiveness, and it works quite well. Um, so essentially, like if you know someone holds a position... Uh, and you know that there is some logical gap within that position that like when someone's made a faulty leap of logic, uh, that that's like required for them to wind up in the position they're currently in. Um, you can just take a Socratic approach with it. Um, and again, like treat them with kindness, treat them with respect. But just like when they state their position, be like, oh, that's really interesting. So why do you think this? Um, And then when they explain that, see if they'll take it back a step further and a step further. And you're not doing this like 20 questions. You're not doing it like you're interrogating them. 
like you're approaching it uh, either with genuine interest or at least you're feigning genuine interest. Mm -hmm. Um, And then hopefully like when they finally come to the step where there's some huge error they're making, then um, in a perfect world, they'll realize it for themselves uh, in the real world, generally, when they explain whatever that step is to you, you can say, like, now, I've I've completely understood what you were saying up to this point. You've made some really good points. But this thing you just said, I'm not completely convinced about this. Could you explain it in a little more depth? Uh, it actually seems much more plausible that and then whatever the true explanation is. And then you can start kind of guiding them from that point. Um, I think people kind of don't go with those two rhetorical strategies because they take a long time. Uh, You can't just like have a top level comment in a thread where you like go on a rant and drop 40 PubMed links and get a lot of likes on Facebook with this approach. Um, So instead of just like typing one long comment and getting a lot of kudos from your people, this might be like a several hour or several day (laughs) back and forth conversation with people. Uh, But it's what actually works. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the <laughs> it's, good it's, play. It's much more gratifying just to lose your shit, call someone another, a fucking idiot. <laughs> another book could be like, I only believe in science. And then you like, you just literally talk about that approach and then maybe instead of having that conversation with everyone, you can just put it out in a book and then they can come to their own conclusions. Maybe. But I guess that's if that's the battleground. I know exactly what you're talking about though. Like it's almost like that instant gratification of the likes and the shares gives them the false sense that they've made their point when we know full well that usually nothing happens. But yeah, you, yeah. you've you've made your point, but it resonated with people who already agreed with your yeah. point. Which even if you put that in the dollars and cents, if you had a product, like you didn't sell anything. So bad approach. Okay, um, Facebook recently train smarter, not harder. That was you kind of had your take on it and how it's pretty much done a lot of harm in your eyes. Can you explain why you feel that way? And it pretty much caught fire on Facebook. Like there was a lot of back and forth there. So, uh, if, if you look at, (laughs) if you look at, if you look at the things where there's actually really solid scientific support for various training concepts, uh, like if you wanted to TLDR all of, the science related to strength and hypertrophy, it mostly just comes down to eh, make sure you're eating your protein and recovering effectively, but mostly just train harder. Um, training volume is positively associated with hypertrophy and strength adaptations. Uh, training intensity is positively associated with strength adaptations. Um, training frequency is positively associated to a point with hypertrophy and strength. Like, Generally, if you're training more and training harder, good things happen. Um, and I think that I think that a lot of people either fall into one one of two traps. Uh, one of one of the traps is the if I do anything at all challenging, I'm going to overtrain trap. Um, and like. If you look at the research on overtraining, the vast majority of it is in endurance sports, and I think that's for good reason. Because, um, like, because like one, you're going to be much more likely to undereat because your training sessions are burning so many additional calories that it's 
it's easy to wind up overtraining due to undereating um, just on just on account of like the negative calorie balance induced by like running 20 miles in a day. Yeah. Um, you're also just just expending more energy total and inducing like a larger total systemic stress on your body. And you're also always going to be in some sort of state of muscle damage and inflammation, especially not so much for cyclists, but especially for like runners because there's eccentric stress on every footfall. Um, so, you know, all of those things together, like absurdly high training volumes, often under eating, like overtraining is, is a legitimate risk there. Um, it's just not nearly as likely with strength training. And just from what I've seen, the people who are in any sort of state, even resembling overtraining from strength training, um, it's mostly not due to the training itself. It's mostly just due to like, they're not sleeping. Their stress is through the roof. Mostly they're not sleeping. Uh, and, and so like, unless unless you just don't have a job and you can live in a gym and like train five hours a day, uh, you're just probably, you're probably just not going to overtrain. You're it's, it would be, it would be incredibly difficult to. And so if, if you kind of looked at like risk reward, uh, the, the risks of training less generally is fewer gains. And that's a very predictable risk. Train less, generally going to make less progress. Uh, the benefits mitigate risk of overtraining, but that's not a very large payoff because the risk of overtraining is vanishingly small to begin with. Um, then on the training more, training harder side of the spectrum, um, the risk is overtraining. But again, that's not a big risk because like, you know, assuming you don't have a lifestyle that allows you to be in the gym five hours a day, you're probably just not going to be able to put in enough work to overtrain in the first place. And the benefit is you get more gains. Um, so I, I see people overly afraid of overtraining and training, uh, insufficiently to make gains because of that. The other, the other group of people who I was writing that status for, and probably the larger group of people are the people who get so caught up with all of the details and minutia of training that they forget they actually have to go to the gym and bust their ass. (laughs) Um, and like, so I get this all the time. The, the worst thing that ever happened to me is I realized that there were messages on Instagram. Um, so I'm only 26, but I'm, uh, technologically more like 70. I don't know (laughs) how social media works. And so I discovered that there were messages on Instagram, uh, (laughs) about, about four or five months ago after having an Instagram account for about two years. Um, and just like, I mean, I get dumb questions everywhere, email, Facebook, but like the, the proportion of questions I get on Instagram that are very frustrating are much higher than on any other, any other medium. Especially if they collected and for four months. Do I? Especially if they collected for four to five months. Oh, I, oh, I just didn't go back and read the old ones. Um, <laughs> But now that I know that Instagram messages exist, like I, I do look at the new ones um, and like just 
just the questions I get frustrate me to no end because it it'll be people who like they've been training for like a year. They're plateaued, not making any progress. And they're like, should I do DUP or should I try velocity based training or should I whatever? Uh, and I'm just like, well, what does your current training routine look like? And they'll like send me a screenshot of it or whatever. And they're, they're, they're fucking barely training. And like, and of course they are because they're, they've only been lifting for a year and they've been plateaued for the last five months. So like they touched a barbell and only made gains for like seven months and then the gains stopped. So like, of course they're, they're not training hard. Um, and like, you know, I'll tell them like, you can try this stuff if you want, but a better approach would just like, just stop being a little bitch and actually try in the gym. Uh, was that your response? <laughs> just like a copy yeah. paste. Yeah. Word for word. More, more or less. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, like I, like I think all of the minutia can be beneficial and does play a role for people at particular times in their training career. But the, the foundation of all of it should just be like, have you acclimated yourself to hard work? Are you used to working hard? Do you expect to work hard? Um, and I think that that should be kind of like the foundation for everyone. So like in terms of a checklist of what you need to do when you first start training, one, get your technique down, make sure you can lift weights without jacking your shit up <clears throat> Two, just get comfortable with hard work. And once you got those two things down, you, you got a good foundation and you can, kind of go on your merry way and and find your way through this crazy world of lifting weights from there. So don't be a little um, But yeah, I, I just I just see way too many people get way too caught up on the minutia before actually like figuring out that, oh, I actually need to train hard if I want to make gains. Well, it goes to that. Like not everyone's goals is going to be to like be that level where they have to actually put in like the real work after effect, like low hanging fruit. People can get to a spot they like, but the people that are asking you have like, they want to bench 400 pounds and they're pissed off. They got stuck at 225. Like if that's your goal, yeah, like get your shit together. It ain't that easy. Like if there's, it's not that easy. And you know what? Be patient too. Um, Cause like, it's nothing like having like a 20 year old who wants to be Arnold and all of a sudden next thing you know, because they're not growing fast enough, they jump, jump on the pharmaceuticals at 20 years of age, like sweet Jesus. Like actually be willing to put the time and effort into. Yeah. But they could sleep better. That's probably, honestly, probably the best advice of the whole thing is like a lot of people, even if they think they're putting the work, they don't have any of those other aspects, which I wouldn't even say is minutia. Like sleeping has a huge effect on all the other shit. No, sleeping, nutrition, those are big rocks. That's not the little stuff. Yeah, for sure. Fucking get your eight hours of sleep. That's what, and stop being a, basically, get your sleep, stop being a little bitch, right? Okay. Yeah, and then don't give them lots of You two can call people little bitches. If I did that, oh my God, people would freak the fuck out of me. I wouldn't say that to their face. No, Greg probably didn't either. He probably said it really nicely. He he can get away with it. Use the methods he talked about. He can get away with it. So we already, we already. (laughs) (laughs) You You had the two day conversation, but you got through to him. Uh, we already asked about the, the personal training and regulation stuff. That was really good. So what do you got? You guys had a... Well, okay, this, let's have a backstory to this. Like, I was totally... I, I don't drink that much. Like, Kansas City, when we were all there, like, I was pretty drunk. I don't know how drunk you were, but I was, like, spitting off, like, ah, oh, like, let's think, not talk about science. Actually, I'm not sure. Greg could be more like, say, Dean Somerset who goes down there and will have, like, two beers and then he's good. 
I, I probably came off really, like totally. really hide hide the fact that you know you're completely obliterated like more Andy Morgan and he was like his eyes looked like two piss holes in the snow as a newfie. Well, essentially, I, I was like, oh, you're coming to the podcast. Like Andrew had already talked to you, and I was like, man, let's like talk about some shit that you want to talk about. Like blah 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 blah. I don't know. I was probably saying some stupid shit, but I'm like, let's talk about something you never talked about. And then you're like, you wrote into my phone because you didn't want to explain it to me, and it said P curve key to the file drawer, and I'm just gonna buy buy Simonson. And that's what you want to talk about after everything. I don't know if you remember it, but you're like, that is the one point I want to fucking talk about. I'm interested in it. But I had no idea what it was, so I had you write it down. And then I looked at it the next day, and I still don't know what it is. And I wanted to not look it up just so you could tell us about it. Uh, okay, sure. It's <laughs> um, too easy. Fuck. So, I... Uh, so, there, there's various levels of being into science and reading papers uh kind of first level is like you you get everything you know about science from blogs you don't even go through the step of like reading the abstracts yourself next step is like you do actually click the links read the abstracts maybe understand some of it um next step is like you actually pull up the full papers and stumble through it and try to understand as much as you can do that for a while. You can read papers pretty confidently. And that's that's where most people stop. Yeah. Um, and the next level past that is uh, getting into meta science and which is like science about science. Um, and then realizing that a lot of things you thought were true probably aren't. So um most science in our field uses a statistical approach called frequentist statistics, which is um, essentially you set what's called an alpha level, which is a p-value you're shooting for. And if you get a p-value below that threshold, you claim that the results you found are, quote, significant. Um, and significant doesn't mean the results are true, but that's how people tend to interpret it. Like you're very confident in the results that you got. Um, and so in our field, um, the typical P value cutoff is 0.05, which people, uh, take to mean that there's only a 5% chance that you got the results by chance. Uh, and there's a 95% chance that what you found was legit. And so 95% sounds really high and people are like, Oh, P value less than 0.05. We can trust this result. Everything's great. Um, but that's not how things work. Um, so there's, there's a few different ways that people could wind up with low P values, uh, that they probably shouldn't. And there are ways that an entire body of literature can wind up with a lot of significant findings that are actually BS. Um, probably the, the best and most famous example of how prevalent that can be is there was what was called the reproducibility project in psychology where um, a lot of psychologists who had strong stats backgrounds were like, I wonder how much of our field is actually just bullshit. Um, <laughs> and so one of the bedrocks of science is supposed to be replication. Like you get a significant result and someone and the whole point of writing a detailed method section in a paper is so someone can go back and, do it. and replicate your experiment perfectly. But, like, no one ever does that. Um, and they were like, hey, no one ever does replications in our field. 
what if we took a hundred important seminal papers in our field oh, no. and tried to replicate these experiments exactly and just see how many of them ac actually replicate. And, uh, the, the net effect was only about a third of the experiments actually replicated. And the uh, average effect size for the replications was basically half that of the original papers. Um, and if you kind of took a, a naive approach to p-values, you would have expected 95% yeah. of them to replicate, but they yeah. didn't. Um, so how can you find yourself in that situation? Uh, one is if you have like too much latitude in how you can analyze data. So you can, you know, kind of chop up your data, kick out some outliers, look at p particular subgroups, just do a lot of stuff and just kind of massage your data set until you wind up with a p-value less than 0.05. Jesus. That's, uh, relatively common. Um, there's also publication bias to account for. So if you do have significant findings, your paper's probably going to get published. Yeah. If you did the exact same experiment but didn't find any p-values less than 0.05, your paper's probably not going to get published. Yeah. And so um, a lot of the significant results wind up in the literature, and a lot of the non-significant results end up not working their way into the literature, um, which, which no can bias the results of like an entire field. Um, and then yeah, there's a few other things, but those, those are probably the two biggest. So, um, there's an approach there. There are several approaches, um, that you can use to try to, to quantify or at least get an idea of how much publication bias there is. Uh, but one of them you can use is called P curves. And so, uh, basically, if you um, if you start with the assumption that uh, every finding in a field was just completely random, there's not actually any significant effect there, but people were just running random experiments and publishing any result they got that was significant. Yeah. If you look at the distribution of p-values you'd expect, um, you'd expect... Uh, you know, basically the same amount of p-values between 0.05 and 0 0.04, 0.04 and 0.03, 0.03 and 0.02, yeah. 0.02 and 0.01, and less than 0.01. Like, you you just expect that to be like a flat distribution. Um, if you expect that the findings are legit and the papers were adequately powered, you'd expect to see a lot of really, really low p-values. Like, most of the experiments would have a p-value less than 0.01. And a few of them would have p-values that barely peaked below 0.05, but that would be very few of them. So you'd expect like a skewed distribution with a lot of really low p-values and very few p-values just below 0.05. Um, and then <laughs> if you have a body of research that is just rife with publication bias, you see the exact opposite yeah. thing. With very few super low p-values, and a whole lot of p-values that are barely below 0.05. Yeah. Uh, and so, anyway, there, there, there are other methods that are... Uh, so, <laughs> actually, when I had that conversation with you, I learned about p-curves, and 
read about some times where they were applied and people found out like, oh shit, this entire body of literature is, fuck. Uh, is, is way <laughs> underpowered compared to what we thought it was. Um, since then, I've read more about it and basically P-curves provide uh, basically the most optimistic, defensible power that one could expect. So P-curves basically say, oh, this whole body of literature sucks way more than you thought it did. Yeah. And then a bunch of other big, scary statisticians are like, well, and it actually probably sucks more than P-curves say it does too. Um, it's worse all of which is to say everything is terrible. Um, <laughs> so so uh, there, m- most, most of like the meta science folks are in psychology, which yeah. is where uh, the reproducibility stuff all started in the first place. And there are a lot of, like meta science people in biomedicine. Um, most people just like, there's just pretty much no one doing this stuff in like fitness yeah. research. Uh, and so um, I talked to my advisor uh, towards the end of last semester. I was like, Hey, would you mind if I did an independent study next semester where I P curved a bunch of exercise science research? All of and them. he's like, and he's like, what's that? And I explained it to him and he's like, that sounds fun. <laughs> You're going to blow so, everything uh, up, man. You're going to be the I, one who I, blows it all up. Yeah, we'll see. So I don't have anything super exciting to tell you guys now, but I mean, just from reading a lot of papers, I see a lot of p-values that are like 0. 0.04, 0. 0.05. Yeah. Uh, very few that are like super, super low. So when I start digging into this stuff, I'm somewhat expecting it to just be a complete shit show uh but i'll i'll have more details about that in december don't piss off any friends because that (laughs) i was gonna say like are you you gonna get james krieger uh are you gonna get uh brad schoenfeld these guys to come on board with you with this stuff or get get them all on board no probably not because like i'm like the thing is i <laughs> so so one approach to, to using P-curves that would absolutely piss people off, but would be a really good approach to it, um, is like when people come up for tenure yeah. and you're oh. evaluating the work they've done to that point, just P-curve their research and see if they're doing good stuff or just P-hacking and a ton of publication bias. Like, uh, that, the that Grim Reaper. A, You'll be the Grim Reaper. Be, that would be a very good use. Uh, that's not what I'm going to be doing, though. Um, like, more so just kind of looking to see whether things have gotten better or worse over time, whether, um, like, journal impact factor influences the average power of the research being published in that journal. Like, kind of more basic questions like that. Yeah. Um, but it does have it does distinctly have the potential to piss people off. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going into academia. So if I piss people off, that's fine. Like yeah. there's, there's no realistic consequences for me whatsoever. Um, but if I did rope some people in who are in academia or planning on going into academia, uh, and they wound up pissing people off, then there could be blowback for them. So I figure this is a, a project where it, makes more sense just from a try to be a homie perspective uh to like <laughs> be a lone wolf and accept the blowback just so so lowly we're assuming you know, that it's just you, gonna be you, a, maybe it's you all know what, right you know what could inadvertently happen 
this well and, and if ever, so like if everything's great that would be awesome yeah. like that's that's what i hope to find i'm i'm pessimistic that that's what i'll find It'd be but more than psychology that's what, I, that's what i hope i'll find psychology is probably more qualitative so i mean like here, i don't know here's what's going to end up happening all of the anti-science wingnuts are going to grab onto Greg's work. Oh, you're going to be that gonna, person. And they're going to use it oh. to validate their anti-science, anti-research bias. So next oh. thing you know, Pete Evans and David Avocado Wolf and oh, no. the Snake Diet guy. Yeah, I said his name. These guys are going to be waving around Greg's flag hardcore. But Greg will be rich. Greg can be the person that gets in that world to then bait and switch them. And then smash them all. Nah, uh, Greg, Greg will be drinking his own urine and fasting for eight days and stuff like that. Personally. I don't. I don't think any of those people are aware that science, <laughs> much less meta science, <laughs> even exists. They will if it proves their their narrative. We'll see. That's crazy. I, I when you said that, like that makes awesome. So that that sounds like a great thing to research. Yeah. I'm interested now, just because of like all the science stuff coming through. Like it'd be interesting to see going back. That, that, in the archives. That was kind of fascinating. I hope our audience stuck through us on that one. Yeah, our audience cool. is like, what? That makes <laughs> sense, though. If you go back and play that, that makes yeah, sense. We, Basically, we, he's we're probably to... got to warn our core audience that you are one smart motherfucker, so they better buckle in, right? Give them the book one. Yeah, so being a man of science and research, that's how I wrote it. Uh, I hope you actually find time to read other shit. And no papers. Research papers, yeah. yeah. So don't give us a research paper answer. Um, as we ask each guest... Um, do you have a book of any genre you found influential and wish to share? Um, going to give you two. Good. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so I'm really into cooking. <laughs> and the book, The Food Lab, is hands down the best cookbook I've ever used. Um, the guy that writes it is just like a big nerd. And whenever he wants to cook a dish, he'll try like 50 different permutations of it to, to find the best the best approach. Um, so The Food Lab is a really, really good book. Um, and then also, I am really into Lord of the Rings. Okay. Nice. Thank so, God someone gave us that. So like, not just Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, but all like The Silmarillion, yeah. all of the backstory, like everything. Um I haven't reread that recently, but I've recently <laughs> I I've, I've read through the main trilogy like five times and all of the background stuff like at least twice. Jesus, that's good. I I, I, I would expect that. Th I was waiting for someone to give us Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, or like Game of Thrones or something, because yeah. like no one wanted to dish out like what they actually Lord, read. Lord of the Rings. I was given the old, old soft covers that my dad had when he was growing up. And I must have read those things when I was about seven or eight years old, which is pretty heavy reading for a kid that age. <laughs> but they were fantastic. When the movies came out, I was really happy with how vivid they recreated what I imagined it to be like. Mm -hmm. um, At so, the time in which they did. Yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. Cool. Um, where where could people find you? Like, what's the best way? Like, obviously, you're not answering Instagram messages. No, no, actually, I want people to go onto his Instagram and find Send, really stupid questions. Ask him stupid questions on his Instagram. Where do they find you? Where do they consume, Greg? Um, where do, what are the things that you want people to hear about? Here's the other thing that pisses me off about Instagram. <laughs> uh, so, like, if, if I post something that's, like, tangentially related to training, and you have a training question... Fine, whatever. Ask it there. 
If I post a picture of my dog, who's incredibly cute, don't fucking comment on a picture of my dog asking me a goddamn training question. That's not that's not the time and place. But people do it all the time, and it makes me so angry. It's it's actually um, probably your friends. They probably know that pisses you off. They have all these fake accounts. It's gonna no, get it's worse. It's just like random people. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's a fair that's a fair thing to get mad about. Like, leave me my dog alone. Like, give me some comments yeah. about my dog. Yeah, I should I should respond to those comments as Oswald and just like just random moves and arms. <laughs> just be like, sorry, gave the phone to my dog. Um, I have this. So one. if oh, go ahead. if you uh, want to read things I write, most of that stuff's on strongerbyscience.com. Um, social media most most active on Facebook, also on Instagram. Uh, I have a Twitter that I barely use. Um, and if so, for the time being, um, until I get out of school, I don't have too much time to write for my website. So most of the stuff I write winds up in mass monthly applications and strength sport, uh, monthly research review I put out along with Eric Helms and Mike Sordos, um, covering all of the recent research that's going to be most useful and relevant to strength and physique athletes. Uh, so that's strongerbyscience.com slash mass. Uh, everybody raves about what an incredibly awesome product that is. So, guys, if you're really interested in getting deep into this sort of stuff, you should really take a good look, hard look at that. I'm going to P-curve all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to do P-curves just so I can sift through it. I mean, it. Probably, I don't know how hard it is, but, like, that's very good. I like it. It's uh, The cool thing is it's actually pretty simple. Is it? Okay. Um, like... It basically comes down to making sure you're selecting the right tests within the paper. So, you know, if they if they're looking at uh, comparing two groups and they run in ANOVA, like you're going to look at the interaction effect, not the main effect. So, like, you know, making sure you're pulling out the right effects and then past that, it's just a chi-squared test, like comparing distributions. You like it's, it's, it's really, and really, really straightforward. Oh, it's just a chi-squared test. Well, okay. you could put it in Excel. Like you could probably just go get way. like 100 papers and put in the values and then... Put it, get an algorithm. I'm gonna, I might do it. it it's, at, it's actually easier than that. So the guys who developed it, they have like a web app where you can either just like put in a list of p values or like f and t statistics. Yeah, and it'll just like do it for you. Oh, that's dangerous. I don't know if I want to know the answer yet. I'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know the answers. I'll wait for you to do, and then I'll, I'll see. We'll see. Okay, shit. Never will p curves. Uh, find them. And we're going to give five-star reviews. Yeah, we'll do that stuff. Yeah, we could use a few on iTunes. That'd be really nice, guys. If I always like to say this. Uh, first of all, please, like, go check out what Greg is doing, especially if you're interested in more like the, you want to get stronger, you want to follow a little bit of the research stuff, but just in general, Greg's content is amazing. He's really genuinely one of the smartest people in the industry. We feel very privileged to get you to come on here, so that is so cool. And he likes dogs, and don't comment training questions on his dog. Or do the opposite and just see what happens. If you're actually someone who (laughs) found this episode, it's your first one because you know Greg or follow Greg, you might like a few of the other episodes we've done. James Krieger and Brad Dieter uh, both did recent episodes. They're very heavily research-based guys. They're very widely respected in the industry. You might really like some of that stuff. Or you might just jump right back to our previous episode with Louis Gorino. He's really fun. It's just a blast. And if you're one of our core audience, yeah, go check out Greg. He's really cool. He's someone we believe in. So thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Greg, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Shut up and sit down.